hello everybody. Welcome to uh, EPAR Trade Live. And uh, the title for this webinar is Health Checks for Multi-Race Engines with Mark Cronquist, Head Engine Builder at Joe Gibbs Racing and Lakespeed Junior of Total Seal Piston Rings. I'm your host, John Kilroy, and I'm Chief of Content and Audience Development here at EPAR Trade. Uh, before we get to the webinar, I just want to share a few quick notes here. Uh, first of all, get ready for online race industry week. Uh, Monday through Friday, November 30th through December 4th. Uh, the in-person trade shows that have been canceled in the racing industry this year due to the pandemic. And we could all just sit around and do nothing, but that doesn't sound like what racers do. So uh, EPAR Trade is positioned perfectly to help the racing industry this year gather together in a virtual environment uh, for the all-important 2021 uh, new product line introductions. So we're organizing the trade show experience uh, online for this year for the racing industry. We'll have a full week of technical and business webinars from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. And then the 2021 new product line introductions will be available on EPAR Trade. That's kind of what we do throughout the year uh, anyways. We have hundreds of companies already participating. So it's, it's easy for us to do this. I say easy. We'll find out. Uh, the theme of the event is all together now. And, uh, you know, can the racing industry suddenly change course and do something it's never done before as an industry? Well, the answer is, hell yeah. So the racing industry gets an A for uh, handling the pandemic. Uh, the sport has not been a source of controversy and hasn't been a source of a major outbreak of uh, coronavirus. So uh, we've got the cars rolling. Races at the professional level and the grassroots level continue to buy parts this year. Uh, so uh, thank you, uh, promoters and uh, sanctioning bodies. You did a hell of a job. Uh, NASCAR in particular took a leadership role and their actions were studied by uh, other sports and then other racing series throughout the world. So we say let's complete the year with another A for the racing industry by getting together in a big way for online race industry week. Uh, Racer uh, uh, Magazine and Racer.com, they're helping us with content. As Paul Fanner says, let's use online race industry week all together now to really reboot the industry, to get through this awful year and kick off 2021 in a big way and get a fast, strong start to the year. Um, registration is free to, to watch all the webinars. Just go to uh, epartrade.com and you can register and just one login will make all the webinars available to you. So it's easy. <clears throat> um, all webinar uh, attendees, you're on, on mute and uh, you're not on video. So we just do that so that there's no distractions. Uh, and we want your questions. So uh, at the bottom of the Zoom screen, there's a chat option and there's a Q&A option as well. You can use either one. I'm going to keep an eye on them. Uh, Lake's going to keep an eye on them. And, and give us your very specific questions and we'll get them answered. And we have a very sophisticated audience when it comes to race engine technology and international audience here today. So, um, you know, get, get to it and don't be shy and just ask your questions and we'll get you answers. Uh, unfortunately, if you're having trouble with Zoom, uh, we can't help you right now. All I can do is direct you to uh, you know, zoom.us, the website. So uh, also it's being recorded. So when it's all done, we'll send everybody registered a password so that you can watch it again, or you can share it with uh, people in the shop or your place of business. So again, our speakers, uh, Lake Speed Jr., Vice President of Sales and Marketing of Total uh, Seal Piston Rings, 
And uh, Lake has been an innovator in marketing right from day one. And it's been really funny, fun just kind of keeping an eye on Lake just from when he entered the industry. He was here, there, and everywhere. And, and from, if you want to know about retailing and racing, distribu distributorship and racing, manufacturing and racing, Lake knows it inside and out. And he actually encouraged us to start the webinar series and, and thank you, Lake. Uh, it's been a smash for the racing industry and it's been great fun. Uh, Mark, Mark Cronquist, uh, head engine builder of Joe Gibbs Racing. And it's just a, a great organization. We're at the top of the pyramid with Mark. And I, I like to think of the racing industry that, that race engine builders are, are really celebrities in our business. And, and I really think after every race, they ought to drag the race engine builder out there for an interview and ask him what's under the hood. You know, I, I think the cars and the technology just have to get back in the sport. And I, I would make race engine builders the stars on TV as, as much as the drivers. And, and Mark's one of those guys that, you know, when he walks into a racing trade show, half of all the exhibitors want to talk to Mark. So we're, we're glad he's here. Uh, right at the top with NASCAR Cup Racing. Kyle Bush brought home the Cup Championship for Joe Gibbs Racing last year. This year, Denny Hamlin's at the top of his point standing. Martin Truex Jr. fifth, Kyle sixth. So just a, a hell of a team. Mark began his career in 1981 where he learned machining and engine building skills while working at Nevada Machine and Supply in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and just worked his way right to the top. And uh, work is a key word for it. And he's been honored with Cleveland Engine Builder of the Year Award uh, several times, both in the Sprint Cup Series, in the Cup Series, and in uh, the, the uh, other series. And then I also want to say for Joe Gibbs Racing, uh, our condolences for the loss of Joseph J.J. D'Amato, VP Marketing Services. Uh, that was tragic and a, a loss for a really great organization. And we're sorry, and our condolences to the team and to uh, Mr. D'Amato's family. So that's my introduction, and, and Lake, has a plan for this webinar and, and Lake, I'll just turn it over to you. Okay, thanks, John, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, like you said, encourage you guys to do it and y'all reached out with everything going on this year. And uh, I think this is a great platform, a great opportunity to have, you know, less of a formal lecture, which there's a time and place for that. And like I said, during race industry week, we'll be able to do some of those things, but have this format where we can kind of just have more of a conversation people can ask questions we can kind of go back and forth i think is a uh, a great asset to the to the industry to be able to take that information and make it available pretty easy and uh, kind of bite-sized nuggets if you will the other thing was about th this particular uh topic today is you know a couple weeks ago you got you had the guys from motul on and they were discussing oil technology and things like that and then they kept on mentioning about oil analysis and for people that are maybe be confused, hey, you work for Total Seal, why are you talking about oil? Uh, well, <laughs> give me a minute to, to diverge and kind of give you the backstory. Um, this month, October 2004, I went to work for that guy over there, Mark Cronquist at Joe Gibbs Racing, in, you know, basically to help kind of help head up and develop the Joe Gibbs oil program. Now, of course, and Mark and I were talking yesterday, that program wasn't just about the oil. And we look back in perspective, it, it's really a system. So, you know, the oil in the cylinder hone and the ring finish, the surface material, the ring, all of those things work together. Piston ring seal is one of the critical elements 
of an engine's performance. If the engine doesn't have good ring seal, it's not going to be able to perform its best. And ring seal isn't like a stake. It's not a singular object that you prepare it and do it a certain way. It's more like soup. It's a combination of the broth and the meat and the vegetables and the spices that all has to come together. And in ring seal, that means it's the piston and the cylinder wall and the rings and the oil. All those things come together. And for you know, 15 years, I was in charge of that oil program developing the oil. So like I always like to say, the piston ring is your oil's best friend because this is what keeps the contamination and all of those things from getting into the oil and hurting the oil so that if the, if the oil is contaminated, it really can't do its job very well. So that's one of my real interests of why I've kind of moved from driven in the oil program to Total Seal, which we use Total Seal at, at Joe Gibbs while I was there and they still do today. Um, that that relationship between the oil and the piston ring is really critical. And to the point of the oil analysis, that's the data acquisition system, if you will, to understand how all of that is working together. So, and really this program of oil analysis goes all the way back to 2004 when I came to work at Gibbs. Uh, one of the guys who's watching today we were seeing is a, uh, our good friend, John Martin, uh, who was one of the physicists at, at Lubrizol that helped us develop that product. So hopefully, John, we don't do anything stupid and say anything dumb and embarrass you because it was John and those guys that kind of set us on that path to utilize used oil analysis as that tool to look into the health of the engine. So, um, I mean, that, that's kind of what we want to talk about today is, is these different tools to do that. And then obviously playing on the back heels of what the guys at Motul said that said, hey, use oil analysis is the tool you use. Without that, you're kind of blind. So um, with that, I'll kind of let Mark make any comments he wants to make about, about that. Well, first of all, I have to say thank you, Lake, for all you did for us for all those years and still do for us at Total Seal. Like you said, that's a whole package. It's not just, hey, I use this ring. You got to know the hone. You got to know your piston. You got to know everything about these things. And now with the multiple use engines, you're not just trying to make power for 400 miles or 500 miles, whatever it is in Cup or Xfinity or anything, even off-road or anything. You have to look at what's it going to do in three races. You want to make as much power as you can for that entire time the engine's put together. And that's where the oil analysis is really good is besides just dying on it, you can look at bearing wear and all this stuff in the oil analysis to say, hey, I got something going wrong. You keep track with the motor, you do two or three oil samples on that motor and you can just keep an eye on everything looks good. No, man, I'm starting to get iron in here. What's happening to my rings? You know, hey, maybe we need to go to a harder ring. It's not lasting a thousand miles or 1500 miles or whatever it is. So there's a whole package and the multiple use engine stuff now that, you know, even Cup's doing it, Xfinity's been doing it for years, Truck's been doing it, off-road guys, a lot of people do it. F1 does it now. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to look at all your things in your motor and the oil analysis, 
dynoin and all this stuff makes a good purpose for these things. We have to look at, you know, I know guys and I've done it. I've been the number one guy doing, oh, this ring makes a horse and a half more. Well, then after 500 miles, it's making a horse and a half less. And then after a thousand miles, it's making three horsepower less. Well, that ain't doing you no good. You know, I mean, the, the races are won however long they are, 400, 500, 1,000, whatever it is, that's when the race is won. That's when you want your motor being the best. So looking at a, at a rebuilt engine or a, a brand new engine right off the bat and you throw a ring into it and you say, oh, this one's way better. Eh, you better do your, you better do your racing. You better look at what it is after the race is over with and, and how long it's going to be after that next race is over with because that's when you want it. I look at it as a bell curve. You want it to start here. You want it to go up. And the whole time you're racing, and then when it's time to rebuild, we shoot for basically being the same as what we built it. That way, the whole time we ran it, the motor is better than what we started, where we ended up. And that's our goal here at Joe Gibbs Engines. So. Yeah, you know, and we, I said we started doing that really almost 15 years ago. That was the program we had in place, and we developed all of these tools, uh, if you will, to do that. And it's it's funny how back then that wasn't really the goal. We still had qualifying motors and stuff like that. But then as time changed, it the markets moved that direction. Like you said, now even Formula One has to run multiple uh, races on the same engine. And that that how the engine runs at the end of its life is critical. I mean, you look at the races past weekend, how many races end on green-white checkers? it doesn't do you any good to be off three horsepower in a plate motor at the end of a race when the only laps that really matter are the last two, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. I, I have to give another person credit besides people like John Martin stuff. I have to give Joe Gibbs a lot of credit for mm. letting me get the tools that I need. I know in 1999 when I went to him and wanted the first AVL dyno, pretty sure it was the first winning cup. And it was like, you know, a little over a million dollars. And then he, he said, is this going to make us better? And I said, yes. He said, okay, I'm kind of, I'm going to buy it for you, but you better make sure it makes us better. And I think that's one of the tools that everybody, you know, that we use to say, well, we're five, four spire off of where we started from. What are we going to do? Like, like Lake just said, the race is one of the last two laps. A lot of times that's where you want your power. You don't need it. You know, yeah, we used to make qualified motors and you wanted it then, but race motors, multiple use motors, you have to make sure the power stays constantly during this whole lifetime. So. Yeah, you're right. We 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 over we owe everything to Coach Gibbs. He's been a, a great mentor for us all, a great facilitator, and a great resource. And um, I know my life changed by them allowing me to come work there. So we're very thankful for that, for certain. Um, so one of the things we were talking about yesterday, and I'm going to pick this up and hold it up. We can a little demo it, right? the handy dandy leak down tester. And these are a great tool. And if you've got an iron block engine, it's a great way to measure the performance of the engine. If you're not familiar with the leak down tool, essentially what you're doing is you're putting compressed air, like shop air, you put it in at say 100 PSI uh, on the gauge. And what it's measuring is you take this and you take the spark plug out and you put that in where the spark plug goes and it measures the differential pressure, how much leak it's happening in that cylinder. And that's a way to gauge how well the engine is, you know, statically sealed up. Um, and these gauges are pretty easy because this one just basically gives you red is bad, yellow is borderline, green is really good if you've got 100 PSI coming in. 
Now, as we were talking about yesterday, Mark, let's say you have a all aluminum billet block. What does this do for you? Uh, not a thing. <laughs> I hate to say that. But <laughs> the, I mean, you have to look at your board distortion and all this stuff. I mean, our our the motor that we design is our first aluminum block here. We call it JD1. It's our new off-road truck engine. We've been out in Baja for last year and a half now and uh, had a little bit of success so far won a couple well won one race had a couple taken away from us but uh for other purposes not due to the motor but uh we found out there that you know you have your sleeve up a couple tile above your deck so when it expands everything's everything works out well if the board distortion is so bad when it's cold that the leak down really doesn't tell you what you're looking for so we have to use the leak down when the motor's hot and that's yep. just one other thing. A lot of guys use leak down when they're cold. Our, our Xfinity motor, the cast iron block, we can do it because the board distortion doesn't change that much between hot and cold. A lot of motors do, though. Small block Chevrolet is, Chevrolet is horrible. If you hone it cold, it will be great cold. If you hone it hot, it will be bad cold. You know, there's certain, you have to know your system. You have to know what you're doing with the leak down tester. You know, if you hot hone something, you better, you better do your leak down when it's hot. If you're doing stuff cold, you better, you know, I mean, you should look at your leak down when it's also cold. So. Exactly. So it's, it's back to it. Great tool, but it has to be used in the correct context, in the correct understanding to be able to have actionable data so that you don't get bad data that sends you in the wrong direction. So uh, other thing is, you know, um, you probably, I don't know how we can see this. This is actually a, a manometer. So it measures crankcase pressure and or vacuum. So uh, like currently we've been working with uh, one of my good friends, uh, Charles Navarro at Ellen Engineering. They do Porsche engines parts. Uh, and we actually have a, I see it's a Suma bore uh, coated engine right now. So typically a lot of the, the Porsche engines are going to be, uh, say, Alusil from the factory. So it's aluminum block Alusil. A lot of them have Nicosil liners added to them. But then what they tried to do is say, let's look at a different bore material and do Suma bore. So what we're doing with this is because Porsche engines have an air oil separator inside the engine that actually creates a slight amount of crankcase vacuum, we can measure the break-in performance and how the, the ring package is doing. And this particular engine, uh, because it's a flat engine, we're actually running a gapless second ring package in there so that the end gaps aren't aiming down so that you get more oil migration from the sump to the combustion chamber. So one, oil's got a really bad octane value. You don't want to have that because it can lead to knock. But then also just oil consumption. Now flat engines tend to have more consumption. So by running a gapless second ring in that package, we can limit that uh, oil migration, limit the oil consumption in a way to kind of measure that vacuum, that seal performance. Because like Mark said, if you leak it cold, there's no way you're going to be able to get to it. And being a flat engine in that car and how the engine's packaged, getting one of these things in there is going to be really difficult. So we put this together so you can actually measure the crankcase vacuum in that engine. So those are some good analog tools to try to gather data. But where we really 
find the most information is what, like Mark was mentioning earlier, is the used oil analysis data. And we found that to be extremely helpful. Mark, do you mind if I share some of the reports we looked at yesterday? I, I put them together up on the screen. Okay. All right, so let me try, and you can talk about this if you want to for a minute while I'm figuring up how to make this show. We'll start so we, off with the JD1 sample. Okay, JD1 stuff, that's our off-road stuff. And we don't have that many oil samples of that because of course of COVID. We haven't raced that many times this year. And last year was really our first year of it. But a lot of the analysis have taught us here, like when we first built this motor, there were some things that we built scared of stuff you know we were like hey how hot does this thing run and stuff and we kind of missed it a little bit at too much piston wall clearance and we got a lot of fuel um dilution in there so we really had to watch how much fuel wear and, and how much and lead's getting in there because it is still shouldn't say this but it's still a leaded gas and it's yep all racing fuel should be leaded gas but you know you <laughs> can't do that stuff so, uh so we end up with a lot of fuel inside our inside this motor when we first started with it. It's very heavily contaminated with lead due to, you know, ring gaps and stuff like that, not knowing where we was when we first built this motor. So that's like one of the biggest things we've been working on this thing is piston seal and ring gaps because we're learning how it's growing. It's a branding engine. It takes a little bit of time. You know, we had a we had some we figured we were going to rebuild about 10 or 15 of these this same year. And unfortunately with racing, we've only rebuilt two of them. So it's very hard to learn and keep advancing it by, you know, without rebuilding stuff. So luckily, you know, like John said earlier, racing's coming about. We just ran the Baja 500 out there and we got a couple races. There's a race this weekend coming up in a couple, in a couple weeks. So racing, like John said, is really doing good starting up and, it's getting going again, but you know, we went those April months without doing nothing. So hopefully now we can get back into it and really learn from this stuff. So that's the, on the JD1 project, that's our biggest thing we've really looked at in the oil analysis and the multi-engine stuff is looking at the oil viscosity before and after the races and the lead, which is probably more the fuel than it is bearing wares right now on the sheet right there. So. Exactly. I think that's been kind of the cool, I mean, the handy piece of this is that because you don't have as many engines out there running a bunch of races to be able to get to the rebuilds to look at the parts and a rebuild, the oil analysis really is your only tool to see, okay, how are those changes you've made? How is the engine responding to it? And we we're actually able to see, you know, just on the, the one up on the screen right here, which I think is triple or sample triple A zero nine seven two and triple A thirteen eighty three. Those are the uh, unit ID numbers uh, for that. So I'll give a quick plug. Okay, the the name that is called Speed Diagnostics is not an accident. Uh, this is a company that my dad and I put the money in together to get started. My daughter, Caroline Speed, she's the one that takes care of this on a day-to-day -day basis. This is her job, and she handles all this stuff. She was my straight-A chemistry student in high school and in college, and really proud of the job she does here. These kits all come with uh, serial numbers on them. So every single sample's got an individual ID number. Everything comes in the box, and then you get this report. 
that has all the cool information on it. Uh, like the guys from uh, Mo Tool said, they don't like Blackstone. So hey, here's your alternative to Blackstone. So here's my commercial plug. Sorry about that for anybody. Uh, but when you look at the data, like Mark was saying, the, the first sample over here you see, which is the, uh, the, the sample date was uh, June 2nd of last year on the JD1 engine. And in that case, we were back running the XP3, the driven 10W30 uh, oil. And that was one of the earlier ones where the piston to wall clearance was a little bit greater. And you can see that the fuel contamination was about 4.2%. And that had an impact on the viscosity where the oil brand new should have been like 11.3 centistokes. That's your measured flow rate uh, at 100 degrees Celsius. Now it's down to 9.8. And that may not seem like much, but eh, for that oil, in our experience, that's a little bit. And so that fuel dilution is what's leading to that viscosity loss. And then that's also evidenced by the amount of lead, because like Mark said, it's a leaded fuel. And one trick is when you look at bearing wear, and he kind of mentioned that, is that most bearings are trimetal bearings. So it means it's an alloy of copper, tin, and lead. Well, the trick is when you have a leaded fuel and you've got lead in the bearings, your oil analysis has ah, just got lead. But those numbers are really, uh, 1600 is a very high number uh, for lead, if, even with leaded fuel. And so there's some copper and there's some tin in that showing up, but those aren't really crazy high numbers. So we see there's probably some fuel dilution leading to some bearing wear. But if you look at the total number of uh, miles and the total amount of wear, it's not that bad, actually. We're seeing some aluminum. Uh, when you read the report, everything that's green means it's completely normal. Anything that's yellow is still within the normal range, but it's in that upper 75th percentile. So you're nearing being outside the normal range. So it's caution. Still safe, but something you could kind of monitor and keep an eye on. Don't worry about it, don't lose sleep, but keep an eye on it going forward. Anything that's red, that's outside of the normal range. It's outside of a standard deviation. Uh, when you look at the wear trend. So you're like, oh, that's something to really pay attention to and investigate more deeply. So when you're looking at this results between the two engine builds, so same engine, two different rebuilds, um, the first one, the bearing wear, or say the, the lead, is at 1687. But then by the change of both the piston design, also changed and went from 10W30, knowing that fuel dilution was there, up to 15W40. Now you go from 1600 parts per million lead down to 1200. So that's where you really get a, a big difference where you can, you've got actionable data. And I think that's one of the things that used oil analysis kind of gives you uh, as an engine builder, as a race team. This is a tool that gives you that insight into your engine where you have very specific levels of detail that you would not get otherwise. That, you know, leak down testers are great tools. Uh, it's quick and easy at the, tr at the track, but you got to, again, know what you're looking at. So you take that data and you combine it. You don't have to dismiss one or the other. Take that data, combine it with the used oil analysis data, 
now you can begin to develop a bigger, clearer picture of what's going on in your engine and see, am I making progress? So that was one sample we looked at from the one engine. And we can go over here to another sample. Let me try to click and I'll go to a, a different sample again from the JD1. And again, you see the same thing that the first sample, now there's less fuel dilution, but there's less mileage on that sample, only 100 miles. But you can see that the next sample with that second uh, engine iteration, where they changed piston to wall clearance, they changed some of those things and moved forward, improving ring seal. That's what they're basically doing, improving nice. ring seal by managing and changing the recipe of that ring seal soup. What are the results? Mm, now we're getting um, less fuel dilution. Again, now we're getting from 1400 ppm of, of lead, high fuel dilution. Now we're down to 1100. So you're really seeing the progression. And oh, by the way, now your, your copper material is going from 12 down to four. Your 10 from 10 down to zero. So you're getting progression there. So that's a real benefit. And you may be wondering the wear trends, why numbers getting less is flagging red. Well, let me just tell a real quick story here. So used oil analysis can only see particles about 10 microns or less. Your eye can only see down to mm, 30, 40, kind of vary somewhere in there. So let's say you've got a magnetic drain plug and you can see particles on that drain plug. Well, that's great because you can see the big particles that your eye can detect. The used oil analysis is detecting the particles you can't see. But what happens is if you get particles that say grow to 15 to 20, well, you can't see it here and you can't see it there. So what happens is if you see where increasing, let's say you see your copper, your tin and your lead, increasing and it's an unleaded fuel sample then all of a sudden they begin to decrease dramatically and you didn't change anything in your engine you didn't change the oil you didn't change the tune-up that's a warning that be that your particles are getting so large the wears increased to a point where now it can't be detected that's why you want to flag it if it goes up or down dramatically because you're looking for that trend analysis. That's the real key. And I think, you know, Mark mentioned it earlier about, you know, the F1 guys going multiple races. And I know that the guys at Motul mentioned that they set up a, a lab. I think it was at Lamar, right, John? Uh, for the 24 hours so they could sample during the 24 hours. All the F1 teams actually have on site in their paddock used oil analysis equipment and they're doing used oil analysis at the track all the time. So this really is a tool people are using in engine development and race strategy and planning of when to change the motor and all that. It really is a tool that gives you data you would not have otherwise. I tell you something also good about it, Lake, is if, you know, not like here at Joe Gibbs Racing that the cars are right next door to us and we get the motors back within a day or two, 
it's if your customer is in Georgia and we're in North Carolina or they're in California, we're in North Carolina or the other way around, they're in Wisconsin and your shop is in California. The teams can take the, the oil analysis, get it shipped out. You will almost have the oil analysis back before you get the motor back if it's being shipped. So you're giving yourself a precaution of, hey, everything looks good in this oil. This motor should be okay. We get it back. We go do our test and we redyno it. We look at the vacuum. We look at blow by. Everything's good. You know, we had a, one of the NASCAR truck teams. I look at their oil analysis for them every week. And, you know, we can almost pick out when their, their spec engine, you know, it's going to go bad because we can watch the iron and, you know, we keep, keep track of it just, you know, like we do our stuff. And we say, Hey, look, the, Iron was good, but you know, a lot of times we see iron the very first race because the hone is going to knock some of the the peaks and the vat, you know, the peaks off of the hone and stuff. You'll get a little bit of iron, but then after you get it the second or third time, and that stuff keeps going up, man, it's hurt the ring, it's hurt the cylinder wall. We can almost see that before we ever get the motor back in our shop. So that gives us a great tool to say, yeah, this thing should be good. We're going to go, and then we say, ooh, here's a bad one. Let's go through. Let's look at. Let's get out the borescope. Let's look at the cylinder walls and let's do all that stuff too. So, oh yeah, especially when they say when you have back-to-back turnarounds and you got a, a West Coast race, so the trucks got to leave early, and you only have a pretty narrow window. Sometimes having that express kit where you can have the sample back in two to three days, you can have information to make a good decision, not just we, a hunch. Um, we actually, there's times where the team wants to run the same engine back-to-back, and we do an oil, oil analysis and say nope everything looks good, just leave it in there and keep going. Or we go, ooh, yeah, you better pull that one out, let's look at it. So it's definitely helping teams that don't have a dyno facility and don't, you know, they're trusting somebody else to build their motors. It's a tool that they can use to wash their own motors also. So especially on the multi-use engines, it's a it's a great tool because you can look at it from day one to the last day and you can sit there and just keep all your paperwork and look at your sheets and your iron and your copper and tin and you can see when things start going bad with them. So. Uh, exactly. And you, I mean, just kind of looking at the samples here, one of the things you can do is, is take, because the samples aren't always from the same distance, you can take the total mileage, the total amount of wear, and then do some math and kind of calculate some values. And there's, you know, there's some margin of error for that. So you got to be careful about sample size and, and, and all that. But when you look at where the first iterations of the JD1 were to where they are already, how quickly you guys have progressed and, and gotten those numbers so that, you know, they're down to, you know, 9.5, you know, uh, total wear metal uh, per hundred miles. And now you compare that to an Xfinity engine, which. Oh, these are good. <laughs> you know, this, this is an engine been working on for what, 20, 15 to 20 years worth yes. of development. And, I mean, we were in, yeah, with with the oil, the driven oil and compacted graphite blocks and everything. This motor is base. I know we changed to Toyota, but compacted graphite block is pretty much a compacted graphite block. We've been running this package since about 2000. So I mean, the oil has been built around this engine. So that's why these numbers look so amazingly good is because this 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 oil was developed with this engine and the engine was developed with this oil so it was like it was like like I said earlier it was the it was the the soup all combined for almost 20 years now yes parts and pieces change 
but it is the same parts, basically the same package. And we just keep working on it, working on it, working on it. So it was cool as, as the piston ring guy now too, knowing that, okay, compacted graphite block, very hard, really good. Um, titanium nitride is the preferred face coating on the ring for that, for that long life. Especially and you look at the door analysis, and there's zero titanium in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I'd hate to say this. When you dyno it, it's not as good right off the bat because it needs some more breaking time. Uh, you know, a, a chrome nitrated ring or a, a titanium nitrated ring is a, or the titanium nitrated ring is a little harder. It takes a little bit more to dyno it. So that's what I'm saying. So you go through the, you know, oh, I'm going to test these rings. I'm going to test this ring and this ring. Oh, this one's better. And do your do your diligence and make sure it's better at 500 miles. Better make sure it's better at a thousand miles because you might learn. Okay, yeah, we're going to be down two horsepower when we dyno it right off the bat and only put 50 miles on it. But you're, you're there's a good possibility you're going to be better at 500 miles and better at a thousand miles with that harder ring if you have a harder cylinder wall. So that's a huge exactly. thing that you have to learn all this stuff about. You know when you're putting a motor together, especially for a multi-use engine. Oh, yeah, like you said, you know, the old school, you know, molly-faced ring that we all kind of grew up with, we knew it bedded in easier. You know, chrome, uh, hard chrome is, you know, hard, weight, like double the hardness of molly. But, again, you run molly in, say, uh, a darton sleeve or some kind of hard, you know, uh, sleeved engine or hard block engine, yeah, it's going to bed in really easy because Molly's very soft. It's like 800 uh, Vickers in, in hardness, where I said the titanium nitride is well over 2,000 Vickers hardness. So it's way harder. So the break-in is going to take a little bit longer, which, again, back to break-in oil for piston rings. It's a really important thing. Um, back to the driven program where we had, you know, the proper break-in oil designed to help move that time timetable up so you could use that titanium nitride ring use the proper break-in oil the proper break-in procedure all that helped us kind of get that bell curve started up here to a good level and then it would increase over time as it broke in and got a little bit better but then 1200 1400 miles later the engine's still really good because we didn't hurt it during break-in to try to get all those parts to break in so that's kind of the fun part is to look at how good I mean, that's an example of a extremely well refined system that engine's a complete system it's not a collection of parts it's a functioning system and that's a great example of one that's ideal and then you compare it to say hey here's one that's really come a long way it's not down to 7.4 yet but it's made really good progress in a pretty short amount of time by utilizing the data tools to try to get there so um, John, we got any questions yet? Lake, uh, we did get a question. So uh, where did the silicone come from and why is it so different on the two samples? And I think it's the two samples you initially showed. Ah, uh, we, had, was... we had this question yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we did. So silicon's typically dirt, you know, so uh, in a lot of engines, you know, uh, engine guys might use uh, RTV silicon, whatever, to put a gasket on and things like that. And in a brand new engine, say a break-in sample, you're typically going to see a higher level of silicon just from, you know, the, the assembly process. 
and everything kind of breaking in. So sometimes those will be somewhere 40, 50, 60 parts per million silicon is normal. And you, and you look at the new oil, right? So the new oil is only around like, you know, two or three ppm of silicon, which is anti-foam in the oil. So that's supposed to be there. That's not contamination. That's normal. But when you see the numbers go way up, so even for the first sample uh, from the, that, the first race in the desert, it was only 12. That, that was really good. The 278, yeah, we don't know. <laughs> like Mark said, we were talking about it yesterday. We don't know where it came from. Yeah. Because uh, there was there was three samples taken of that. There was two of them high like that, and there was one of them low from all from the Vegas Torino race. Uh, I personally, I told Lake yesterday, I said, I personally put the air cleaner and all the stuff on all the cars, and they're all the same. I was like, man, I don't know where that came from, but you know, could it have been the could have been the guy didn't clean the the tube out when he drained the oil out of the tank? You know, there's several things that you. That's one thing I was going to mention earlier, and I should mention it now. When you do these oil samples, you really need to do them the same every time. You know, we got guys. We like to take the oil samples right after the race. We like to suck it out. Uh, we have some little suckers. We I don't have one here with me right now, but you know we like to do it when the oil's hot, uh, oil's mixed. You know some of my off-road stuff. They like to go home and do it at home when it's cold. So it's a little different. You know I mean you really need to get everybody to kind of do it the same way. I like to do it when it's hot right off the racetrack. All the oils mixed, nothing settled. You get a good sample. Sometimes if you let everything settle and you draw it right out of the bottom of the oil tank, eh, you might get a little bit higher numbers than you're used to seeing because it all, you know, oil does, things do settle in the oil after a while. But that's why I like to do them when they're hot, just right off the racetrack, suck it out and keep it right there. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's a good question. If anybody else has why the silicone side, I would like to know too. But we're, we're that was a dirt, that was Vegas Torino, so it was in the middle of the desert. We're assuming that's dirt. Uh, where the dirt came from, we're not 100% sure because the system was, the oil system was never opened. The, the air cleaners were never opened. Uh, I, we don't know that one. That's a good question. Yeah. And, and the questioner had a follow-up too. So uh, could it have come from the piston skirt? So uh, really I'm gonna say no, because when you, when you look at say this sample right here, so the aluminum on the sample with, with, even though it's 45, it's still not incredibly high. If you say, and you look at the previous sample where the aluminum was 24, but the silicon was 16. So that's not showing a correlation that that piston material is the same, but you're not seeing a big, uh, a big delta there between those. And now when you get over here to the sample that's incredibly high, you're still at a lower level of aluminum. So, because obviously pistons do contain aluminum and silicon. So that's not where it is. The bore wear, because if, if it was just dirt going straight past the filter and going in, what you would expect to see is an increase in ring wear, bore wear, and piston wear. So that's going to be iron, titanium, and aluminum. But you're not seeing that in the result. So that's kind of where we kind of came to yesterday. The conclusion is maybe the contamination happened 
in the sampling process. Maybe the tube they were drawing it from or the, the container may have been opened and exposed because the two samples that were high were from one shop. The sample that was low and normal was from a different shop. So there may have been something in how they took the sample, which is, that's the nice thing is that you, because you've got all these different pieces of data from the analysis, you can begin to kind of play that CSI with this a little bit and say, you know, the whole picture here doesn't really think, doesn't really add up to contamination via the air cleaner, you know, straight into the engine. It may be a sample contamination issue in the handling of it seems more likely at this point. Okay, we have an, another question. This one's about piston rings. Uh, so the, the question is, uh, can you tell me, Lake, the top quality your rings are made from, and, and we're talking about durability. He has, uh, he rebuilds dirt racing blocks and some run off of 112 octane and others are methanol burners. Uh, something he could encourage his racers to use in their blocks. So uh, when you're looking at those applications and there's some variances there, um, you know, we make three different, we, we make rings from three different materials. Uh, the, the basic, you know, grassroots level ring is the ductile iron ring with that uh, Molly face coating. It's a uh, lower cost ring. Um, and, you know, for some people, that's what they're willing to pay. Uh, they, they're going to burn them through quickly. But that ring isn't going to have the life that, say, a stainless steel ring is going to have that has uh, a PVD face coating on it, like a CRN or a titanium nitride. And those are going to live a lot longer. And it, now the trick is with that ductile molly ring, you don't have to be as precise on your honing because ductile molly is porous. So you're going to have some oil retention in the ring itself. When you have that PVD coated ring, now all the oil retention has to be in the hone. And Mark and I went through this years ago with the, the different hone finish and when everybody was getting into the mirror bore finish and the valley got so narrow that you couldn't hold enough oil at the top of the cylinder. Uh, proper lubrication of any component, be it a flat tappet or a piston ring, is having the right oil at the right place at the right time in the right amount. This isn't just an oil seal. It's also an oil lubricated component. So it need, you have to have oil retention in the valley to be able to protect that ring. So uh, for this guy, what I would say is your longest lasting, most durable ring is gonna typically gonna be your stainless steel rings with the PVD coating. But then you're gonna need to, to maybe invest in a profilometer in order to me measure your surface finish on your cylinder wall so you can get that proper surface finish holds the correct amount of oil to properly lubricate the ring so you can get the, the most life out of it uh, back to where our uh, that engine <laughs> that's the perfect example of what you want that that's perfection simply um, I will say this like that as an engine builder you want to rebuild the engine more so you know maybe you want to use the rings that wear out more so. <laughs> 
and just you know we all like to rebuild engines to make money too so no, I'm just that's true that's that, that that's true uh the other marine material i didn't mention is uh tool steel so we also make tool steel piston rings and those are for the extreme temperature applications uh, it, it's funny to think now that a thousand horsepower 1500 horsepower is just not an impressive number that that's a, a streetcar anymore and the real impressive stuff is 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 horsepower pro mod motors and things like that that are making crate, just making crazy numbers. When you're making that much power, the heat that the rings are exposed to is incredible, especially uh, with nitrous oxide. Uh, one thing about nitrous oxide that makes it very different than a non-nitrous application is, you know, obviously we have air that we breathe and there's a percentage of that air that's oxygen. Well, most of it's nitrogen. That's a very small amount of it is actually oxygen. When you inject nitrous oxide, the ratio of oxygen to nitrogen is greater oxygen. So for the amount of air, the amount of atoms that you put into the cylinder uh, combustion chamber with nitrous oxide, there's a higher ratio of oxygen than you would normally have. So it's the oxygen that is involved in the chemical reaction. Nitrogen is just inert. It's not there. The oxygen's having the reaction. So the more oxygen you get in the cylinder, the more energy is being released from the combustion event. That energy is heat. Heat is what anneals the ring material. So by going from uh, stainless steel to tool steel, you've got a more thermally resistant material that can handle that heat from those extreme horsepowers and last longer. But again, you got to really need that material uh, to need that material. Hope that answers that guy's question. And we had another question too. Uh, with all the different skirt coatings, what would that show up as in an oil sample? Well, it depends upon what material they're using for the skirt coating. So, so some skirt coatings are PTFE, um, which is uh, plastic. So this is wear metals. Plastics are not going to show up uh, in there. Now, if they're impregnated, like there are some... Um, Let's say back to Porsche engines, for example. So uh, an alucil block engine, it's, it's aluminum silicon. So uh, I think it's Mala has, I think they call it Graphol, is their, their skirt coating that, that has uh, iron impregnated in the skirt coating. So, so if you're doing a, say, oil analysis on a Porsche engine, higher levels of aluminum are going to be normal um, because and silicon in some cases because of that bore material. But when you see iron start showing up, now that could be the skirt coating wearing off. Uh, that could be a trend to look for as because really the, the timing chain wear shouldn't be uh, a, a really high number. Um, your valve train wear shouldn't be a very high number because those are going to be the iron components in, in the engine. So knowing the engine metallurgy and the surface uh, finish or surface treatments to it is really key to getting the
the most precise information from the oil analysis report. And, I, and let me add something there, Lake. And that's one thing you need, when you're doing the oil analysis and on your multi-use engines, you need, you know, okay, I change pistons and it's got different coating and you see something like silicone go up or iron go up, you need to be investigating. It may not be bad. It just may be every little thing changes the oil analysis. You know, I'm just saying if you put a coating on the, on the piston, it does have iron in it. Maybe you're, you know, don't just, oh, it's, it's bad. You just have to learn it. That's why I preach all the time, do a lot of oil analysis and you can watch the trend. Hey, we changed pistons and it's got a different coating. Why is the iron more? Well, you probably look into it. It probably does have iron in the coating or silicone or something else in the coating. So if you change something, don't freak out the first time you look at it and say, oh, get more than one sample, learn from it and, and follow it. And when you do change a part or you do change an oil, it looks differently. You know, I mean, things don't look the same on every single part. You know, I could show you thousands of oil samples on the Xfinity one. I could look at those numbers off the top of my head and tell you if they're good or bad without even looking at them hardly. The JD1 motor being different, I have to sit there and study them a lot more just because it's a newer engine and I don't have that many samples of it. So. Yeah, still learning that one. Yes, yes. And then um, for a grassroots racing team, you know, Saturday Night Racer, uh, how often should they uh, use the oil analysis on their engines? Well, the bare minimum, if you're going to commit to the program, is at least sample every time you change the oil. That would be the bare minimum. Um, you know, some guys, for example, say they do road racing, uh, track day type stuff where they're not going to be changing the oil every time they go to the racetrack because the car <laughs> might be a daily driver in some cases or move around a little bit. I, I would say after each event, if you're going to be driving the car something in between would be the bare minimum um, that you'd want to be able to do because last thing you want to do is say if you're, you've got a track day car that you drive to the track that you go out to the track and you run the car really hard and you have a problem is continue to drive the car in between that that's you're putting the engine at greater risk so uh after each event is the best thing to do uh but for some cases if you're running a saturday night short track just dirt track racing um maybe you run every two or three weeks before you change the oil then what you could do is, uh, if you don't have a magnetic drain plug, uh, get you one of the uh, oil filter cutters, change your oil filter after each race, and then cut it open and look for anything you can see. Uh, if you see something in there that shouldn't be there, that's your red flag, stop what you're doing now. Um, but then at least every oil change, do a sample and then send it back in. The great thing with the, uh, I'm gonna get in, plug it one more time, uh, what Caroline's got with the kits is that you've got a, a six-day kit. So if you send it on Monday, you have the results by the following Monday. Sometimes you can get it by Friday. The mail's a little bit slower now uh, than it used to be because the, the actual kit actually contains prepaid express mailer. So the, all the postage, all the processing, everything's kind of already included in that. Uh, or you've got the three-day kit where you send it on Monday, you get the results on Wednesday. 
So you've got two different service levels based on how critical your performance is, how much time you have between events. That way you can get that data back. I agree with that, Lake. I would, you know, I don't know how often people change their motors on their short track cars, but maybe even halfway, you know, say, say you run your oil six races at your local short track. I would say at least six races, but I'll tell you one thing that I like to do too, is I like to get an oil sample right off the bat also. So you have that baseline of where that motor is and then learn from it from there. You need to get one that's bad and go, oh my God, that, you know, you almost need one after the first week or two also, you know what I'm saying? So. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Because yeah. if you think about it at break-in, like you said before, all those asperities, all those peaks on the cylinder wall, on the push rod tips, everything that's a wear component that breaks in, all that metal's coming off. So the break-in sample is the high water mark. It's the most wear that engines had ever see under normal conditions. So that's your, that should be your threshold. If it gets near there again, it's, things it's are bad because it shouldn't wear that much ever. Yeah, for sure. We're getting close to uh, 10 a.m. and we, we try to keep it to an hour so everybody can kind of get back to work. So to, to wrap it up, uh, any final words, uh, Lake, any final words from you about the tests for race engines? Well, I think the, the obviously the cost of racing has increased and people sometimes, well, I mean, we all complain when you got to spend more money than you used to spend. But I would also say this, the quality of the parts are much better. So when you have a ductile molly ring that, you know, you can buy that ring set for, you know, $125 at, at Summit versus a ring set that's, say, stainless steel PVD coated that's $300 at, at Summit, you're like, wow, that, that's too expensive. Well, this one can only live so many races. This one can live five times longer. So the value of the parts is actually greater. And it costs more, but the value of the parts are greater because the parts are made out of better materials. They have, they're held to finer tolerances, better surface finishes. All of that enables longer engine life. And by utilizing oil and house, laying that over as that predictive maintenance tool, now you don't have to just cycle parts out on a mileage basis you can actually mileage parts out based on data. You don't have to just guess, you can do data-based, which in the end, now you buy the better part, last longer, actually saves you money, and then you get better performance, better, you save money in the long run, buying that little investment in better parts and analysis can really actually save you money in the long run. Absolutely, I totally agree, Like that yeah, the part might be twice as much, but going back to the bell curve, if your motor's twice as good at the end, that's even better for you. And, and yeah, I hate it as, I hate multiple use engines because to me, I like building engines. So that's my, that's what my passion. I wish everybody would race them once and throw them away and buy new ones or send them back and have them rebuilt because it keeps us busy. And the more we build engines, the more we learn from them. But right. knowing where the economy is and where racing is, we all have to use engines. Man, we got Xfinity motors running four or five times now. And that's, man, I can remember when we first did the, the first two race one, we're like, oh my God, really? We got to run this motor two times? Now we're racing them four and five times. And it's, 
but like you said, that's due to better parts and better pieces. They're actually making more power, living longer, and everything else. So, so. all right, we're, we're getting right to 10 a.m. And I want to okay. thank you, Lake and Mark, uh, for uh, doing this for not just ePartray, but for the racing industry. Uh, we think these webinars are just a, a great new response to the pandemic, but also it's a great innovation, I think, for the racing industry to kick this off, get it started, and now people can kind of get this information just from their, their shop, just on their computer. It's very easy and inexpensive. I, I remember when cable TV came along and there's all of a sudden there's 500 channels about everything, and I thought, it would be great to have a racing industry TV channel. And that's what ePartrade Live is kind of feeling like, you know, that the stuff we always talked about uh, at the trade shows that we talked about in the race pits, and now it's kind of live and on the air uh, because of folks like you. So thank you guys. Um, and then ePartrade, just an example of how to use it, uh, Speed Diagnostics is a pro account supplier in ePartrade. So if you're smart sourcing uh, racing technology on ePartrade and you look up testing, Speed Diagnostics comes up. Uh, we're not an e-commerce site, so you contact Speed Diagnostics to set up what you want to purchase and why. Um, but um, that's, that's how to use ePartrade, basically. And then when it comes to online race industry week, I, again, it's a different experience because it's online. We haven't done it before, but I think it's going to work really well. And, and just remember, there's no travel. There's no hotel expenses. And one of the great values is you don't have to leave your shop. So you just stay home, stay within your business. We had a friend from the UK uh, go to one of our webinars where we explained uh, all about ePartrade. And he's not a race team, he's not a supplier, he's not a, a retailer. So he hadn't really paid enough attention to us and he went to the webinar, I think yesterday, and he, he just said, I had no idea what you're doing and what this could do for the worldwide racing industry. So now he's a, he's a leader in the racing industry UK and he, he's gonna try and help get us some European content as well for online race industry week. So we're going full guns. Uh, this has been great fun. We could talk another hour and a half, but people got to get back to work. So again, thank you, Lake. Thank you, Mark. Uh, that was fantastic. Thanks, John. We appreciate the opportunity. Yes, thank you very much.